Hi, I'm Elise Lunen, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop Podcast. Today's guest is Ozan Veral. He's the first guest in our special series called Dreamers, which is all made possible by our friends at Avocado Green Mattress. At the end of the night, the measure of a great mattress is comfort. When one of our editors took a field trip to the Avocado Green Mattress factory, she saw firsthand how avocado mattresses are made. And for them, it's about more than just comfort. It's about the people and materials involved in the process. Avocado Green mattresses are handmade in their Los Angeles factory with Gotts Organic certified cotton and wool and Goals Organic certified latex. Their materials are sustainably sourced from farms they co-own in India. And I can tell you from personal experience that yes, they are incredibly comfortable. To learn more, head to avocadomattress.com Right now, until September 30th, you can use code GOOP200 to save $200 on select organic mattresses. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Ozan Veral is an author and law professor at Lewis and Clark University. Before that, he was a rocket scientist. He just came out with an incredible book called Think Like a Rocket Scientist. Today, Ozan is sharing the thought principles that are derived from rocket science, and he'll teach us how we can apply them to make giant leaps in our own lives. Ozan explains that it all starts from unlearning what we know. When we question all of our assumptions and leave behind the baggage of history, we're able to clear the path to a better tomorrow. We talk about why we lose curiosity over time, why it's important to rediscover it, and how to approach everything with a beginner's mind. He'll share fascinating stories of how we have and haven't learned from past mistakes. We also discuss why it's so difficult but essential to become adept at changing our minds in the face of new information. Scientists have an advantage on us here, as instead of clinging to their beliefs, they develop working hypotheses. This is key because as we've all learned from our time in community with others, changing our mind often means changing our identity. And because of this, we often find ourselves entrenched in old ways of thinking and doubling down on things that we don't even know how we arrived at in the first place. It's amazing how simple questions from amateurs who know nothing about what you're working on will jolt you out of your outdated assumptions and and see the problem through beginner's mind. Let's get right to my chat with Ozan for all. It's funny, actually, I picked up your book to start reading about a week ago, and I was 
incredibly distracted like the rest of the nation. And yet I was like, holy wow, like this book is actually, which is seemingly about business in a way is so relevant to what is happening all around us. So congrats. I feel like you weirdly wrote an incredibly prescient book that launched at a time of great uncertainty and upheaval and at a time when we need to disrupt the entire system and rebuild. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for your kind words, Elise. Yeah, obviously, I had no idea that we were going to be hit with a pandemic and thrown into such immense uncertainty when I wrote the book. But I also wrote the book to be evergreen. You know, the very first chapter in the book is called Flying in the Face of, of Uncertainty. And even though the pandemic has generated unprecedented amounts of uncertainty, uncertainty is the norm, not the exception. I think we tend to assume that the ground underneath us is stable, but the cosmic banana peel is just always around the corner. We don't know what tomorrow is going to look like. And so I wanted to equip people and businesses with tools from rocket science. So the book isn't about the science behind rocket science, but really taking frameworks and principles and strategies that we can all apply in our lives to make giant leaps to thrive under conditions of of uncertainty and create a better tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, it's wild because I think this is the first time that so many people are grappling with that as sort of this, somehow the pandemic created the uncertainty, right? And the reality is like everything is uncertain. It always has been. But I love this, this passage. It's near the beginning it's the, you, t- you quote Yuval Noah Harari, who says, we spend far more time and effort on trying to control the world than on trying to understand it. And then you write, you know, we look for the step-by-step formula, the shortcut, the hack, the right bag of peanuts, which is, you know, about superstition and rocking, or sorry, and launching rockets. And then you write, over time, we lose our inability to interact with the unknown. Yeah. That, that's such a beautiful sentence. Thank you. Yeah, it's and it's so true, right? When we when we look at our daily actions, we try to control what can't be controlled and we don't try to control what can be controlled, right? So we when a, when a change happens in our lives, we shake our fists at the gods wishing that the universe had dealt us a better hand, which is a really futile exercise because there are just certain yeah. things about our external circumstances that we can't change. And trying to do that, it's like tugging at a flower to make it grow faster, right? It's, right? it's just not possible. It's far more useful to ask, okay, you know, the universe dealt me this hand. Instead of wishing for a better hand, how could I play best play the hand that was given to me? Now, if the pandemic disrupted the way that you're running your business, for example, you can ask, well, how can I use my skills, products, and resources in a way that I haven't used them before? And how can I solve the problems that the world needs solving right now, as opposed to the problems that that I expect it to solve? And I, you know, personally went through this when my book came out on April 14th and my book tour was canceled. And I was really excited about it, of course. And I spent two very miserable days wishing for reality to be different than it was. And then I told myself, you know, it's it's time to walk the talk and think like a rocket scientist <laughs> and and go back to actually asking yourself what is within your control? What what can you do now that your physical book tour was canceled to get the word out? And that actually ended up generating quite a bit of creativity and I did a number of virtual events and virtual book launches with other authors who were in a, in, in a similar position and I think in terms of promotion 
I ended up better in a better place than I would have had I gone on a physical book tour. Yeah. I mean, you talk about, you write to, you know, in other words, you, you write when uncertainty lacks boundaries, discomfort becomes acute and letting the amorphous fears of an uncertain future marinate in your head turns up the volume on the drama all the way to 11. And in this absence of facts, whether it's about the pandemic or as we watch, you know, protests erupt across the country and people are finally starting to understand that we need to create a more equitable system and take it all the way down to the studs and rebuild it. It's happening sort of like all, you know, it's the same. It's a similar sort of wave of um, the status quo needs to go. But that's terrifying, right? Because we're 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 unable to anticipate the future, predict the future, or even understand the future. But it's sort of as you said, like the more you can wrestle with it, the more you can say, okay, no book tour, no assurances that I'll be safe from COVID or whatever it might be, then you can start to actually like wrestle with it and get comfortable. And then do you, is that is the balance that then, as you said, the outcome can often be even better than the original intent and often significantly better than the fear? I think so. Absolutely. Because we don't spend enough time questioning the status quo in our lives, questioning our assumptions, processes, habits, routines, what we know. There's a saying by Richard Feynman that I love, the Nobel winning physicist. He says, the first principle is that you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. Mm. And and so in a way, the, the current conditions have forced us out of the status quo. And this is a great time to be questioning all of the assumptions that, that we're operating under. There's a ch- chapter in the book called Reasoning from First Principles that I think is particularly relevant right now. And I'll, I'll illustrate the principle with a, with a story which is timely because it's about SpaceX and SpaceX recently, as of the time of this recording at least, launched two NASA astronauts into orbit and and docked with the International Space Station, which is an amazing accomplishment. When Elon Musk was first thinking about starting SpaceX, he initially was shopping on the American market for rockets. So used rockets to, to buy rockets that other people had built. And as wealthy as Elon was at that point, moment, it was still the rockets were way too expensive to be able to realize Elon's dream of of sending humans to Mars. So he went to Russia, and I kid you not, he was shopping for decommissioned intercontinental ballistic <laughs> missiles <laughs> without the nuclear warheads on top, of course. And, and even those were too expensive. On one of his trips back to the United States from Russia, he, empty-handed, he had an epiphany. And he arrived at that epiphany using first principles thinking. So that's a, a, a way of thinking from physics that requires you to question all assumptions as if you're hacking through a jungle with a machete. So you're getting rid of the weeds. You're unlearning what you know, leaving behind the baggage of history in order to clear the path for a better tomorrow. You go from being a cover band that plays somebody else's music to being an original singer, original songwriter that goes back to the fundamental raw materials, the musical notes, and creates something new from scratch. Um, so for Elon, he realized he was playing the role of a cover band in trying to buy rockets that other people had built. He asked himself, well, what are the raw materials of a rocket? 
And how much do they actually cost? And it turned out that if he built the rockets from scratch himself, it would be like 2% of the typical price. And so that's what he decided to do and, and cut his own metal from scratch and build SpaceX into, into what it is today. And first principles thinking also led him and also Jeff Bezos and his space company, Blue Origin, to question another deeply held assumption in rocket science, which is that rockets couldn't be reused. So for decades, rockets that launched their payload into orbit would burn up in the atmosphere or plunge into the ocean, requiring an entirely new rocket to be rebuilt. Now imagine for a moment doing the same thing for commercial flights. You fly from, I live in Portland, Oregon, you fly from Portland to Los Angeles, the passengers deplane, and then someone steps up to the plane and torches it. That's basically, as ridiculous as it sounds, that's basically what we did for rockets for, for decades. The cost of a modern rocket is about the same as a Boeing 737, but space flight is so much more expensive or was so much more expensive because rockets couldn't be reused. But both SpaceX and Blue Origin are questioning that fundamentally held assumption and now relanding rockets. There is a landing pad a, at Cape Canaveral next to the launch pad. And that's a new thing um, in rocket science. And it, that resulted from first principles thinking of not taking anything for granted and being very intentional about the assumptions that that we're operating under. And so if you're a listener tuning in, I know you're not going to start, probably not going to start a, a, an aerospace company, but you can step back and ask yourself, what are my assumptions? What are my routines and processes? And which one of these do I need? Which one of these are serving me well? And which ones can I get rid of? And that exercise is, is a really useful way of just hanging a question mark at the end of things that we take for granted and paving the way for for a better, more creative tomorrow. Yeah, and I love, and we can get into sort of some of the exercises that I think are so really made me think hard about everything, both work and life. But before we move on, I just, you know, you talk about how the status quo is a super magnet. And it's so true. I mean, that's certainly been our experience at Goop where one of our one of our core principles is this idea of just of ask of being curious and asking questions mm-hmm. and operating from a place of we don't know and there are no dumb questions also recognizing and i feel like scientists recognize this but but it doesn't always extend beyond this that science for one is continually evolving most of our great scientists have been proven you know reliably wrong more often than right, or they're they're they've been right about many things, but things have evolved now to be different. Like you talk about, sort of the evolution from Aristotle to Galileo to Newton to Einstein, and now we're sort of at this point of quantum field theory, right? So, right. but but I think as as consumers of science and being relatively if not dramatically, scientifically illiterate as a culture, and I, I put myself in that camp, we have this idea, again, it goes back to certainty, but this mm-hmm. idea that these are facts and that they're not, they shouldn't be tested and they shouldn't be, they shouldn't evolve. And, you know, as you point out, we we hammer, hammer politicians who change their minds as they as they come to a deeper understanding of the circumstance or facts. But so it's this weirdness. It's this like desire to be stuck 
in the mm-hmm. moment and a, a complete rejection of the idea that that's not reality. The reality is like our understanding continues to evolve, our technology continues to evolve. And every scientist I know, including all the PhDs at Goop, they have this beginner's mind per- constantly. So how do we adopt that? And why, where does it, you know, I know you have a lot of good tools in the book, but like, where does it come from? Why is that? Is it just our allegiance to certainty that we, that, that's the reason we cling to the status quo? That's definitely one of the reasons why we cling to the status quo. I think we were all born with a beginner's mind, by the way. I mean, if you just watch children, they're so curious about the world. They're so Mm -hmm. self-driven. They're so interested. But over time, um, in part because of social conditioning, in part because of our outdated education system, I mean, we can have a whole discussion around education methods and and how they uh, impede beginner's mind, but we lose our curiosity over time. And it's in part also because of well-meaning parents who extinguish curiosity in their children. I open one of the chapters in the book about this seemingly crazy question that Einstein asked himself when he was 16 years old. He thought, what would it be like to ride next to a beam of light? Now, you could totally imagine you know, Einstein going up to one of his parents and, and telling them that question and then the parents saying, Stop the crazy talk, right? Go back to your mm-hmm. room, do your homework. That's ridiculous. And I'm so glad no one told that to him because that question stuck with him for 10 years. And the resolution of that question gave us the special theory of, of relativity. And so then the question becomes, with so many of us losing beginner's mind, how do we get it back? You already mentioned one part of this, which is really creating a culture in our business about asking questions and asking dumb questions and really encouraging that. I think that that is really, really important because questions are just stifled in our education mm-hmm. system. The teacher just steps up in front of the classroom and just delivers knowledge and the students are supposed to just write that knowledge down, right? And and spit it back out on the on the exam. But that's not how real life works. We have to ask great questions to be able to to be able to get ahead in life. Another tactic that I I find really useful is bringing in beginners into the conversation. Expertise is really valuable, but often experts are so close to the problem to be able to think differently. So a lot of the gate crashers tend to be outsiders. So Elon Musk, for example, was an outsider to rocket science when he launched SpaceX. He came from Silicon Valley. Uh, Reed Hastings, who founded Netflix, was a, I think he was a software developer before he went into the video business. Jeff Bezos came from the finance world when he started Amazon. And so, mm-hmm. and that's, by the way, one of the reasons why I love teaching so much. My day job as a, as a law professor, students on a daily basis ask me, quote unquote, dumb questions that are actually not dumb at all because they mm-hmm. go to some fundamental aspect of the problem that I'm not seeing because I'm too close to it to be able to think differently. And this, by the way, doesn't require an enormous budget. You don't need to hire a really expensive consultant to come in and give you advice. It could be as simple as asking your significant other to to tell you what they think about what you're working on. My wife, Kathy, is the the first reader of anything I write. Mm -hmm. It could be about bringing in someone within, say, a different team within your company who knows nothing about the project you're working on and just inviting them to ask questions. And it's amazing 
how simple questions from amateurs who know nothing about what you're working on will jolt you out of your outdated assumptions and and see the problem through beginner's mind. Yeah. This I thought also was so was so brilliant and and borrowing, you know, from the scientists who you are primarily writing about in the book is, you know, you talk about how beliefs our beliefs about anything, really. I mean, I think this applies to politics, to raising children, to what's going to work in an email at work. Over time, your beliefs begin to blend into your identity. Mm. And that when your beliefs and your identity are one and the same, changing your mind means changing your identity, which is why disagreements often turn into existential death matches. And so as a result, and again, I'm still quoting you. At the outset of their investigation, scientists refrain from stating opinions. Instead, they form what's called a working hypothesis. And I love that, I would, you know, that opinions are defended, but working hypotheses are tested. It seems so applicable to everything that we're experiencing culturally and the way that many of us, including myself, you know, I, I have my beliefs for sure. And some yeah. of them are so sacred I, and so essential. But there are certainly things where I'm like, why am I so attached? Like, I, why am I so fixed on this issue that I was like, that is so wise? Yeah, no, I, I think identity and you hit the nail on the head, Elise. Identity is one of the biggest reasons why change doesn't happen. When our beliefs and our opinions are blended into our identity, as you said, changing our mind means changing our identity, which is a really, really hard sell. So if you believe in CrossFit, that makes you a CrossFitter. If you believe in plant-based eating, that makes you vegan. If you believe in primal eating, that makes you paleo. If you believe in climate change, that makes you an environmentalist. And when our beliefs and our identity are one and the same, change is a really, really, really hard proposition because our identity is is who we are. And it's a story that we tell ourselves when we get up in the morning. We look at the mirror and we tell ourselves, this is what I believe in, this is what I do. And then our beliefs and what we do becomes our identity, which means we stick to them. Even in the face of conflicting evidence, even when the world around us changes, this is why so many companies are stuck you know, looking at the, the rear view mirror, if you define your identity as, say, a seller of a physical film, you're going to miss the digital revolution as Kodak did. If you define yourself as a physical video store where you charge people late fees as Blockbuster had done, you miss the, the streaming revolution. And, and that's really, really important in our personal lives as well. And I, I've had so many different transformations in my life. And at every juncture, my identity, my ego tried to get in the way. I grew up in Istanbul, lived there for 17 years, came to the United States for college, majored in astrophysics, and, and worked on the operations team for this 2003 Mars Exploration Rovers project. And then I did a major 180 and decided to go to law school. When I was about to make that change, there was a voice inside of me screaming, you're being ridiculous, right? No self-respecting rocket scientist drops what they're do doing and goes to law school. The same thing happened when I pivoted from practicing law to becoming a law professor and then pivoted again from being a law professor to, to writing a book about rocket science. I mean, I get questions about why I didn't write a book about thinking like a lawyer. 
Because right, <laughs> sounds that, fascinating. That's, like, <laughs> <laughs> that's supposed to be my identity. That's supposed to be what I do, and and it's so hard to to get away from that. And so. It, there, there are a number of things you can do, but one is this idea of working hypothesis you mentioned. I, I view life as a series of experiments. I, I do these experiments and I see what works and what doesn't. And some of these experiments are going to fail, by the way, but others are going to work. And, and it's created a much more interesting life for myself. Uh, and the other thing I do is there's this poem I love from Donna Markova called I Will Not Die an Unlived Life. And in the poem, she writes, I choose to risk my significance so that what comes to me as seed can go, go to the next as blossom and what comes to me as, as blossom can move on as fruit. And so mm. whenever I'm afraid of making a leap, whenever I hear that voice inside of my head saying, you know, you're, you're going to make a fool out of yourself. Donna Markova's words just come to me as echoes from my subconscious reminding me that that I've got nothing to lose. So that phrase, I choose to risk my significance, is one that I repeat to myself on a regular basis. We'll get back to Ozan Veral in just a second. Working from home has given me an opportunity to reconfigure my daily routine. As part of that, I've decided to redevote myself to the ritual of amazing sleep. And one of the first things Rob and I did about that was get an avocado green mattress. All I can say is best sleep ever. There's a reason Goop has been partnered with avocado green mattresses for a long time. Their mattresses are amazing, and they're passionate about the people and materials that come together to make the mattresses. Avocado green mattresses are better for your health and the planet. Their team handmakes organic certified mattresses and bedding in their Los Angeles factory, and they use Gott's organic certified cotton and wool and Goals organic certified latex. Avocado is a certified B Corporation, a new kind of business that balances people, planet, and profit. And they are climate neutral certified. In 2020, Avocado went carbon negative with their carbon footprint, all the way from their farms in India to their California factory to your doorstep and they donate 1% of all revenue to environmental nonprofits. To learn more, head to avocadomattress.com. Right now, until September 30th, you can use code GOOP200 to save $200 on select organic mattresses. Back to my chat with Ozan Veral. You seem to have overcome what I think, you know, keeps a lot of us playing quite small in our lives, which is the sunk cost fallacy. And right. speaking of lives, like that can also cost lives when you're talking about things like rocket rocket science and launching astronauts into space, right? Which is this idea that, and, and certainly a lot of my friends, because I graduated from college at a time of economic uncertainty and there weren't jo- job offers were being rescinded and a ton of my friends just went straight to law school. Yeah. And then a lot of them stayed in law because they had gone to law school. And it's the same reason as you say, like you finish, we finish books that we hate or we stay in relationships because we've invested the best years of our lives, et cetera. Like we don't know how to cut bait. And and I think this happens at work, too. And 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 sure, in the wider culture where we're so, again, invested in this thing that we've spent our time in that even when it's not working, we're like, no, we have to see it through. 
And yep. it's crazy, actually. It's kind of a form of insanity. It is. There's that old adage about the, the futility of doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Yeah. And and I think that's the same thing here when it comes to the sunk cost fallacy. And and what you're explaining, Elise, also highlights one of the the downsides of of grit. I think grit and persistence are really important, but persistence doesn't mean repeatedly doing what's failing. Persistence doesn't mean doubling down on the same strategy that's not working. Persistence mm-hmm. doesn't mean throwing good money after ma- bad and then hoping that the wind blows in a in a better direction. When we take grit and persistence to an extreme, uh, then the sunk cost fallacy just really kicks into high gear because we just stay the course regardless of what our internal signals are telling us about a mismatch between who we are and what we're doing as well as the external signals about what the world is telling us. Mm-hmm. You know, And that's why people, I think, one of the reasons why people don't learn from, from failure is because you know this fail fast mantra is so popular in in silicon valley these days but i think it's it's misguided because failing fast doesn't mean you're learning fast most people when they fail they attribute it to external factors right they they say well you know we failed because we weren't lucky or we failed because we were ahead of the voters we failed because of our competitors our regulators are this and that but personal culpability doesn't make the list. So we avoid a true reckoning. We fail to look at ourselves and say, you know what? We failed because we made a bad decision. We made a mistake. And if you don't do that, and if you just stay the course, that damn the torpedoes attitude is going to lead you in a, in a very, very bad direction. And that, by the way, applies to success as well. Now, it, it can be harder for us to survive our own success than our failure. Because when we succeed, we definitely don't do a reckoning. When we succeed, we're popping champagne corks and lighting cigars and celebrating, but not asking ourselves, we may have succeeded even though we made a mistake. We may have succeeded because of luck, because of privilege, because of opportunity. And if we keep doing the same thing we did yesterday, we may not succeed again. And so success is a way of, of driving complacency and, again, the reaffirming the sunk cost fallacy because if you did something yesterday and it worked yesterday, most people are going to do the same thing today again and fail yeah. to ask whether it's the right thing to do. Totally. I mean, there's another great quote near the beginning where I this was such a blast from the past and reminded me of how much I loved that this book when it came out. But you talk about distru- how destruction, you know, like evaluating our systems or the way that we do things and then, you know, burning them to the ground, like destruction by itself isn't enough. It's, it's not accompanied by a commitment to the right thought process. If a factory, and this is a quote from Robert Persig, if a factory is torn down, but the rationality which produced it is left standing, then that rationality will simply produce another factory. If a revolution destroys a systematic government, but the systematic patterns of thought that produce that government are left intact, then those patterns will repeat themselves. And so that's from Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which is such a blast from the past. But And you talk about this in the context, too, of NASA, right? Like right. you could bring in different leaders and yet they still managed to kill astronauts because of, of a failure of 
investigating and, and being critical about all of the various processes that they'd constructed and assuming because they'd been successful that that would continue to be the result, even though they were, I guess, pressing their luck is putting it lightly. Exactly. And, and you know, we are looking at, I have a chapter dedicated to the Challenger and Columbia accidents, and we are looking at what happened in those accidents through the 2020 lens of hindsight, of course. And these are really, really difficult decisions to make. But at the same time, it doesn't mean we can't learn from them. There's actually a lot to be learned from them. Because the, the transformation of what happened from, from Challenger to Columbia is very much an illustration of the quote that that you just read, at least from, from Robert Persig, the technical flaws that led to the disaster of Challenger in 1986 were fixed, but the underlying cultural flaws were not. Um, the technical flaw was this, this O-ring, which is like a flexible rubber band that is responsible for sealing the joints of the solid rocket boosters on the shuttle and preventing hot ga- gases from escaping. And the O-ring failed. There are actually two of them, and both of them failed on the Challenger, which is why a tragic accident happened, claiming the lives of all seven astronauts on board. NASA fixed the technical problem, but the underlying problem of conformity, of of groupthink, of not being able to raise dissent remained at NASA. And so one of the things that happened six months before the Challenger accident an engineer by the name of Roger Bourgelet penned a memo that turned out to be quite prescient. He basically said, the O-rings are failing, and if you don't do something about this, it's going to be a catastrophe of the highest order. We're talking about the loss of human life. But the managers ignored the memo because of the mindset that we talked about before, because the O-rings had been damaged on prior occasions, and that damage hadn't compromised the mission. And from their perspective, the, the mindset was that as long as we do what we did yesterday, that produced a success yesterday, then we're going to be okay. We can't fail. Mm-hmm. But just because you're on a hot streak doesn't mean you're going to beat the house. And so 17 years <laughs> later, you know, it happened with Columbia, right? It, you fixed the, the technical flaw. You demoted or fired the responsible managers But the underlying flaw of conformity, of not being able to voice dissent, remained at NASA. And with with the Columbia in 2003, the technical flaw was completely different. This was a a, a piece of foam that separated from the external tank of the shuttle and struck the thermal insulation that's responsible for protecting the shuttle from the the heat of re-entry into the atmosphere. And a number of engineers noticed the the foam and it was just really, really large and it left this gaping hole in the thermal insulation. And they raised their hands and they said, look, we need to take a close look at what happened during liftoff. The shuttle was in space. And they actually said, you know, let's call the Pentagon and reroute some spy satellites to take a look, to survey the damage in orbit, to see what we can do about it. But the manager said no. And they said no for the same reason that they had said no for the Challenger. They said, well, look, foam shedding had happened before. The exact same thing had happened before, and it produced success on these prior missions. So there is no reason to do anything differently. So Sally Ride, who is a NASA astronaut, and um, she served on the accident investigation committees for both the, the Challenger and Columbia accidents, she said you could hear the echoes of Challenger 
in Colombia for that reason. And so, so I think it's important to ask ourselves, to remind ourselves that success often leads to complacency. And that if we if we have an uninterrupted streak of success, that can actually be a warning sign, uh, not a, not a, not a sign of good, but a but a warning sign, and 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 prompt an investigation in us, hopefully, to ask you know even though we succeeded, what went wrong, what may have gone catastrophically wrong, and what what can we do to fix it, to make sure that these problems don't snowball over time. To produce a disaster, and you know, it also points to the the importance of creating you know cultures, work cultures, but really any sort of culture of psychological safety where dissenters are heard. And because in both of those instances, there were, as you write about, you know, engineers, scientists who were waving the flag and saying this is problematic before, during, you know, during Columbia, but certainly before. Challenger. And so, and they were dismissed. And so how do you, you know, I love this idea of doing pre-mortems and creating a way of uh, creating forums where people feel like they can be bad news bears, you know, and talk about genuine concerns and criticisms. And can you sort of explain what that is and, and the way that it, it can expand thinking? Sure. And, and, and the, the key phrase which you mentioned, Elise, is psychological safety. Um, and I have to admit, by the way, when I first heard it, I <laughs> dismissed it as, as woo-woo. It like brought up images of people sitting around the conference table and joining hands <laughs> and you know, sharing their feelings and whatnot. But, but after looking at the research, I backed down because the supporting evidence is, is rock solid here. And, and psychological safety, and I would point people to the research that Amy Edmondson has done at, at Harvard Business School. But psychological safety basically means that no one is going to be punished or humiliated for their mistakes, their questions, their requests for help. Now, there's a difference between sloppy mistakes and there's a difference between between that and intelligent mistakes. Intelligent mistakes happen when you are working on things that may fail, that may not work. Sloppy mistakes are just being careless and sort of repeating the same thing over and over again. But people need to be need to feel safe in in making intelligent mistakes, in intelligent failures. And and the, the way to create that is through psychological safety. And of course, there's a there's a number of things that that companies and 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 businesses can do, but the number one thing, honestly, is leading by example. When when the leader on a team says, look, I am not infallible. I am not invincible. I might fail. I might miss something. I need you to speak up. That, according to research, goes a really, really, really long way. Hmm. And leading by example also means, by the way, sharing your own failures and sharing your own mistakes with your team. Um, Mm -hmm. Sarah Blakely, who's the, the CEO and founder of Spanx, does this at new employee orientation meetings. She'll sh- share her own screw-ups with, with the employees. And, and that's so rare in this world, by the way, because we're so accustomed now to presenting this curated, perfect portrayal of ourselves on social media, airbrushing the, the negatives, rounding off the edges, and, and, and giving off this, this perfect portrayal. And if people on your team 
see you as someone who can do no wrong, then they're not going to feel comfortable in coming yeah. up and raising their hand and saying, I made a mistake. But if you're leading the way and if you're saying, you know what, here's a screw up I made. Here, here's how I failed a year ago. And this is what happened as a result. And you're doing that repeatedly. Then your employees, your team members are going to feel much more comfortable stepping up and sharing their own mistakes and their own failures. Because, and here's the thing, failure can be the best teacher if you know how to approach it properly. Because failure mm-hmm. provides invaluable information. And your goal as a leader should be to, to discover that information, to unearth that information from your employees before it snowballs into something you can't control. Uh, and that's where psychological safety becomes so important. Yeah, no. And, you know, I agree. Modeling the fallibility and talking about failures and then also going back to this idea of curiosity and, and asking questions in the way that we're all terrified of, you know, looking dumb, but modeling that too, you know, there are no, there are no bad questions. And what you think is obvious is likely if if something's not obvious to you, it's likely not obvious to someone else who also doesn't feel comfortable asking. And I think, you know, when we're talking about rebuilding or talking about creating a more equitable future, I mean, I think this way about, you know, even Goop, where we have a number of different businesses under one roof. And there are times when, and I think that I can't speak for Gwyneth, but I think we all have, you know, some imposter syndrome. I come from magazines. I don't come from running businesses. Mm-hmm. She was an actress until she sort of became our, op- our operating CEO. And there's so much language in business. There's so much, you know, and you see this in finance too, right? And where business and finance converge when you're talking about cap, ta- cap tables and EBITDA and, you know, CAC to LTV and all these acronyms, right? It's like, it's not that hard. You know, you you talk about it, business is hard. I'm not, I'm, business is really hard, but that's not that hard. It's not that hard to actually figure out what people are saying in the same way that there's legalese and the way the doctors talk is intentionally befuddling. But that Michelle Obama quote where she, in, mm-hmm. in Becoming, where she's like, I've sat with like, you know, in, Jeep, in all these summits around the world and they're not that smart. But there's this idea, I think, that we're all supposed to know each, know everything and we obfuscate by using big words and acronyms and making things seem hard and inaccessible when the reality is if you if you're curious and you lean in and you ask questions it's not that hard and people aren't that smart rocket science is hard I don't want to discredit your early career but you talk about this I guess in the book as well just like how 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 small we play because we're we we're we don't think that we have what it takes for whatever reason exactly I opened the book with you know describing John F. Kennedy stepping up to the podium at Rice University Stadium and pledging to land a man on the moon, this is in September 1962, before the decade is out and return him safely to the earth. And at the time, what he promised was quite literally a moonshot. People in the audience thought that he was crazy. NASA <laughs> officials thought he was crazy because you know so much of what is actually what was required to land on the moon hadn't been done yet. No American astronaut had worked outside of a spacecraft. Two spacecraft hadn't docked together in space. NASA had no idea if the lunar surface was solid enough to support a lander, whether the communication system would work on the moon. Kennedy said 
some of the metals required to build the rockets hadn't even been invented yet. We jumped into the cosmic void and hoped that we'd grow wings on the way up and grow those wings we did just seven years after Kennedy's pledge, Neil and and Buzz took their giant leap for for mankind. And a, a child who was just six years old when the Wright brothers took their first power flight, which lasted all of like 10 seconds and moved like 100 feet, would have been 72 when flight became powerful enough to put a man on the moon and Mm. return him safely to the earth, right? That's 66 years taken with it. I mean, that giant leap happened within a single human lifespan. Yeah, And that's really a testament to thinking long-term We tend to think really short-term in what we do. We're looking at tomorrow. Businesses are chasing short-term quarterly outcomes. Politicians are looking at these short-term electoral cycles. But if we can calibrate our thinking a little bit long-term, it's just amazing what humankind is is capable of doing. And then the other part of this, of course, is, is actually aiming higher. As you said, Elise, you don't actually have to aim for the moon, of course. That's what moon... Not what moonshot thinking means. Uh, It can mean that, but it doesn't have to mean that. It can mean simply aiming higher than you would have done before because what you Mm -hmm. strive for ends up becoming your ceiling. So if you're striving for mediocrity, then mediocrity is at best what you're going to get. And this is what we've been conditioned by society to do, is to fly low. Flying lower is safer than flying higher. Small dreams are wiser than moonshots. And so we end up aiming low. And of course, that becomes our ceiling. And I was fortunate enough to raise in a family, even though I come from very humble circumstances, my, my parents made me believe that if if I wanted something, there was no roadblock to, to achieving it. So even though they didn't speak a word of English, they'd never been to the United States before, I was able to learn English as a, you know, a second language and then, and then move to the United States by myself. But it's in large part because they inculcated that belief in me that that anything is possible. And yet with that still, you know, I still suffer from imposter syndrome. You know, every time, every time I like, I, I do a lot of corporate speaking before every speech, I still get nervous before I hit publish on a blog post. I still get nervous. And, and I, and I've, I, I wasn't always doing this, but especially in the past year or two, I've become very open about how I feel and not only because it keeps me on my toes, I think imposter syndrome at low doses can be a good thing because the moment you think you're not an imposter, that you've made it, is the moment you stop learning and growing. Totally. So the dose makes the poison. Uh, at low doses, it's great. At high doses, it can be paralyzing. But I also wanted to, to share uh, the fact that I su- still suffer from imposter syndrome in part to inspire my readers to let them know that you know this feeling of self-doubt is completely normal. It never goes away and it's going to stay with you. And if you can keep it in, in low doses, it will actually point you in the, in the right direction. And unfortunately, we, don't, we just don't see that with, with so many perfect curated portrayals. But behind the, you know, the, the gloss tends to reflect more than it reveals. Behind the gloss is, is often a very imperfect and a very messy reality. And I think we could do more to, to share that reality with people, to inspire them, to let them know that they too can achieve what they want. 
I wanted to read one final, I'm sure you love just having me read you your book back to you, but I wanted to read one final passage and then just sort of in light of this moment in time where it feels like everything can and should change. I just want to understand, I want to hear from you how we start, how you would as a rocket scientist think about moving forward. So you sort of, the end cap of this is the Walter Isaacson quote, one mark of a great mind is the willingness to change it. Mm -hmm. And then you gave the example, which is a, a prescient and hard example. You write, one of my favorite U.S. Supreme Court opinions is Justice John Marshall Harlan's dissenting opinion in the 1896 case of Plessy versus Ferguson. In that case, a majority of the court against Harlan's sole dissent upheld the constitutionality of racial segregation. The case was later overturned in Brown versus Board of Education. Harlan's dissent came as a surprise to many. Harlan was a white supremacist. He used to own slaves. He staunchly opposed the Reconstruction Amendments to the U.S. Constitution, which prohibited the government from discriminating on the basis of race, among other things. When Harlan's critics accused him of flip-flopping, his answer was simple. I'd rather be right than consistent. So what's your best advice as we try to move through this moment and actually create systematic change and change the pattern? I think it's important to keep in mind that our voices are stronger when they rise together. And, and speaking up and demanding change right now is, is really, really important. I, you know, this week, I, I send out a, an email every Thursday about reimagining the status quo. And in, in my normal emails, I don't cover current events. I don't normally discuss politics or, or racial justice. But I felt like this week, now was not the time for normal. Mm -hmm. And I struggled with what to write. I thought about skipping the email to give space to far more eloquent voices on racial justice. I feared not knowing exactly what to say. I feared repeating what other people had already said. But honestly, above all, I feared saying the wrong thing. But then I realized none of these is a good reason to remain silent because change doesn't happen if we remain silent. You know, the, the quote from Martin Luther King Jr., he says, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Here's the thing. It doesn't do that automatically. It mm -hmm. doesn't bend toward justice if you remain silent. It doesn't bend toward justice if you proceed as, as normal. If you don't, it also doesn't bend toward justice if you wait for someone else to show up and take action. It bends toward justice when ordinary people leave behind the baggage of history, when ordinary people untie their beliefs from their identity, when ordinary people change their minds, when ordinary people make small, sustained changes that build up over time to something extraordinary, that's when we're able to push the arc toward where it must go. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Ozan Veral. For more, head to ozanveral.com and sign up for his newsletter. That's O-Z-A-N-V-A-R-O-L. And I highly recommend getting a copy of his book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist, out now. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. 
I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.